We wanted to, Blend and I want to thank you all for um, the opportunity to be here this morning. I will say when we pulled into the parking lot, I drive a white four-door Ford 4x4, and we drove up. There were four white Ford trucks in the parking lot, and three of them were 4x4s. I thought, we are with our people this morning. <laughs> so that set my heart at ease, as well as did one of your congregation this morning. I was up studying early downstairs at the Best Western, and there was a young lady by, by the name of Nikki who is in there. And um, i just tell you, she really encouraged my heart this morning because um, for whatever reason, I was just fearful about being here. And I just want to tell you what a wonderful lady she was. And God used her this morning to minister to me. Um, I will tell you that Aki is a better preacher than I am. Now, he probably didn't tell you this, but he won the preaching um, award at the Master Seminary in the year he was there. He probably would never have told you that, but he did. And I did not. So I want you to know that. Eki is a better preacher this morning. But um, we, are, we do preach from the same Bible. So if you'll bear with me. And if God would work through me and you would listen properly. I believe that we'll be edified this morning. If you'll just let me pray one more time. And let the, ask the Lord for his blessing on our time this morning. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our life. Lord, so many ways you prove yourself faithful over and over and over. And I'm just so thankful for how you've encouraged my heart this morning. Lord, I pray that the words I speak will be the words that come from your word and that the way I explain it will be the way you meant it and that, way, and that the way these beloved people hear <clears throat> or listen will be the way you intend for them to listen and respond. So, Lord, guide our time here, and we ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7. And I'll apologize starting off is I have got something wrong with my throat. I constantly clear it. So just to let you know, that's going to be happening. And so just overlook that in love, if you would. Okay. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. of. I've called this sermon a primer on judging. And you might ask, and I'm sure we've all read this text. It's Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. And we may all have read it, but I want to tell you why this is so vitally important in a practical way in the church and in the world. But primarily in the church. I do a lot of counseling at Grace Church, and we have people that come in for any number of problems, and usually... It's centered around some conflict with another person. I mean, y'all would all agree people are not always the easiest to live with, right? Um, but this text is important because it intersects every doctrine in Scripture, I believe, that refers to how one believer reacts to another, or <laughs> wrong word, how we are to respond to one another. For example, the Bible's uh, in the New Testament, we're instructed with to love one another to forgive one another, to bear long with one another, to bear one another's burdens. And if we are not the people that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, we'll never carry out those things. We'll never, we'll never fulfill that duty of the church. If we remember what Christ said in, 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 in the book of John, he said that they will know you're Christians by your love and the unity, the oneness that we have with one another, that by that the world would know that the that the father had sent the son and that he loves them as much as he loves the son. So this is vitally important this morning, because what we how we look, the attitudes we have for one another are very important. And if we do not have a biblical mindset, a kingdom mindset in this regard, we will not be able to satisfy these other texts of Scripture. All right, so let's begin by looking here. Um, there's four or five points, and I would call them verses one through two, that judging is prohibited. Verses three through four, we've called judging your brother. Verses um, five, we call judging yourself. And verse six, we'll, we will call judging the world. Let's start in verses one. And to judge not that you be not judged 
For with that judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you are using, it will be measured back to you. Here we have simply stated a command from our Lord that says, do not be judging. But what does Jesus mean by judging? Because when I say that word, I realize there's a lot of connotations that come in your mind. Probably all of y'all have been judged legitimately and you thought you have been judged in other, other ways. But what does Jesus mean by judging? In the context that we're going to see here, he's talking specifically about passing an unfavorable judgment or criticism, finding fault with or to condemn. All right. He's not talking about discernment. You know, we make judgments about this or that being we should choose this or that. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about having a condemning judgmental attitude towards and specifically as we're going to find this is written to he's going to say to your brother now this re this is going to refer directly from one christian to the next and how i just to to, to sure that up i want to just mention a little contextual background with the book of matthew matthew is writing to jews and he begins by stating that Jesus is the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. He is essentially saying that the one who would bless the nations and the one who would rule righteously over the nations is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. Um, a major theme in the book of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. One of those two terms is used 99 times throughout this book. So that is a big theme here. So when Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, or John in Matthew chapter 3 begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus would begin to preach that same message, repent for the kingdom of, of heaven is near. And when, when Matthew uses this term kingdom of heaven, the Jews understand what he's talking about. He, they would automatically in their mind recognize that this is a reference back to Daniel's prophecy. I believe it's in, in chapter 7. I'm not sure on that. But it's Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in the end of this dream, a rock is cut out without human hands. It crashes into the bottom of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, and it crushes it. And Daniel interprets that to him, that the kingdom or that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom on this earth that will crush all others. And that there will not be any other kingdom greater than this. So when Matthew uses that term, they understand what's going on. When we get to Matthew chapter 5, we have here is the king. And he begins to preach what we would call the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to talk about what would it look like to be in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But specifically, not are the circumstances, but what do the people look like so if we're going to be people god's people in this kingdom of god then this text and everything else that's written in matthew tells us what we must be characterized by in order to enter that kingdom we don't earn our way into the kingdom be clear about that but if you've been brought into the kingdom of christ through faith in him then there is a character within you that has to conform to this. Does that make sense? Nod your head if everyone's with me. Okay, I'll see that. Thank you. Judge not that you be not judged, for with that judgment you judge, you, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We just said, the Lord has said simply, do, do not be judging. Do not pass some critical, condemning, unfavorable judgment upon another believer. The present tense of the verb here reveals that this is an ongoing process. So we're talking about someone that has a critical spirit, not, you know, you, you messed up, you stumbled, and you did something. We're not talking about a past event. We're talking about a process that's ongoing. And I would suspect that this is the heart of a person like that. There would have been many past events. Y'all may know people like this. You may be one of those people. I don't know. God knows. But he's warning against an ongoing criticizing and fault-finding attitude. So what is the warning, he says? Do not be judging in order that you would not be judged. For with that judgment you are judging another, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you are measuring, it will be measured back to you. There it is. There's the warning. If you judge others, you will be judged. But this begs two questions, or at least it did to me. And it'd be this. Just who is it that will judge me if I'm going to be judged for judging others? And what might that judgment look like? I want to tell you this morning that that judgment comes from God. But you might say, John, hold on a second. Doesn't God love us? Wouldn't he wouldn't judge us, would he? Well, let's turn to Scripture to answer that. Just hold your place there. Flip back to one chapter to Matthew chapter six, verses 14 and 15. Remember, we're, we're wanting to find out, would God judge his people? Remember, we're not talking unbelievers. We're talking about his people. Well, verses 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Well, that's pretty plain. No ambiguity there. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to see where the Apostle Paul makes reference to something here. 1 Corinthians 11, we understand that is the... the um, when you all take the Lord's Supper, most likely whoever is leading that, which would be your pastor, is going to quote from this text. Paul is talking to this church in Corinth. And they've been doing some things that are very unloving to one, to one another. Um, some people are very uh, affluent and they have lots of food and they don't share it with others. They get together with everyone as a group and they eat their food. Others go hungry. Some people are actually drunk at this, what we would call a love feast. And Paul's rebuking them for this. But look what he says in verse 29. And he, he's telling them, examine yourself. Make sure you're eating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Look what he says in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And then he, to give him a little comfort, in verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. I want you to consider too, given the fact of what we just read right there, in the Corinthian church, there were some people that God had chastened to the point of death. He loved them, yes. But there's... You have to understand, too, the other people in the church are his people, too. I look out here. Some of y'all have kids. Most of you have raised children. If you have more than one child in the house, when one is horribly unruly to the other one, do you ignore the, the fact or do you bring justice to bear? You do. God loves all of his people. And these texts of Scripture, and I could give you more, verify that this judgment would come from God. Consider Ananias and Sapphira for a second. Given what we've just read here, I would not be shocked to see them in heaven. I don't know. We may see them in heaven. So there it is. Don't be judging in order that you would not be judged. For with that judgment you're judging another, you'll be judged. With the measure you are measuring, it will be measured back to you. That's a strong warning for us this morning, isn't it? If you do not want to receive God's chastening judgment in your life, albeit he loves you, but it won't feel much like love at the moment, then don't be judging your brother. Verses 3 and 4. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you be saying to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, or behold, a plank is in your own eye. What is the speck? What is the log he's talking about here? How are we to understand that? Let's define those terms briefly. A speck in this Greek word is a small piece of straw or chaff or wood. It'd be something that if you're walking across one of these hay fields right now and the wind got to blowing, you'd probably get a speck in your eye. In the Hebrew, I'm sorry, in the Greek, it's used to denote something very, very, very insignificant. 
That's important to understand. It is very insignificant in contrast to the log, or your translation may say plank, or your translation, if you're using the King James, may be moat, which I'd never heard that word, <laughs> that word ever before. But a plank, in this case, is a heavy piece of timber such as a beam used in roof construction. I don't know if this building was built out of wood or metal, but there are big beams that support this structure. And Jesus is using this metaphor of something that is very insignificant compared to a beam that is big enough to support the roof structure of a building. We find, too, in the, in the tense of the verb here, that it is an ongoing observation. It would be more properly to, to say this verse like this. And this is the way the people understood it when Jesus said it. Why are you seeing, why do you keep looking at the splinter in your brother's eye, but do not consider the huge beam in your own eye? The SV version, some of y'all may have it. I, I generally like it, but I don't like it here. Because it states you don't notice the beam in your own eye. This might lead us to believe that, that the beam really is not seen by the individual that's passing judgment. But that is not the case here. It's quite the contrary. This word, um, uh, in some translations, in my translation, the New King James, it says you do not consider the beam in your own eye. This word for consider means to exercise your mind. It's to pay attention to, to, to look plainly, to understand, and thus take it to heart. So, you have a person that knows the beam is there, but they won't consider it. A few other texts to help us understand this word consider. Just give you a broader idea and clarify this. In Luke 12, Jesus writes, consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they neither... They neither have storehouse or barn, yet God feeds them. Of how, how much more value are you than the birds? Consider the lilies. Same word. They grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus here in that text instructs us to the folly of worrying about the just bare basic necessities of life, food and clothing. But he tells us to consider we're to fully exercise our mind toward that which is patently obvious. Have you ever considered, any of y'all, who's feeding the birds? You ever thought about that? What Jesus said to consider it. If he's feed the bird, he would feed you because he belongs, or because you belong to him. Now back to our text. The issue is that we can't see the beam. We just established that. We see it. Our eyesight is great. We can see a splinter in the eye of someone else from across the room. Something so insignificant. We can perceive its color, its length, its shape. We perceive all manner of characteristics about that insignificant speck. But moment by moment, we refuse to even give a second glance to the massive beam that is sticking out of our own eye. I know all of y'all are wondering, John, just tell me what the beam is. And I just want to pause here. If by the end of this sermon, you've written a list and says specs and beams, you have not listened or I have not, I have not made myself clear here. Let's be clear. We're not talking about big sins versus little sins. And it'll make more sense here in just a second. But you're refusing to give glance or to refusing to do something with that beam. You should know that on the ignoring the beam in your eye will make you, will lead you to make some very assuming demands on other people. Let me say that again. If I, when, I'll use me, when I ignore that beam, I make some very assuming demands on my lovely bride over here. She would say amen if we were in a southern church. <laughs> but let's look in verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take this back out of your eye when behold, there's a log in your own eye. When Jesus says, when it says, let me take this back, this is actually in, a, in the Greek, it's an imperative, which as you're going to find out if you don't already, anytime we have an imperative in scripture, that is a command. 
So actually what's happening here, the individual that is judging another is not actually asking if he can help. You know, we, we, might, we might look at this and think, oh, look, how nice. Let me remove the speck. That's not what he's saying. He's making a demand on the individual that you permit me to do this surgery on your eye. He has proclaimed himself to be the eye doctor. It would look like this. Let me, let me, permit me to work on your problem. Y'all ever met anyone like that? Or at least maybe it seemed like that? I think you probably have. If we admit to it, we've probably all done that with our kids. I know I had beams sticking out of my head when I had teenagers in the house. It was tough. But this is what the beam will lead you to do. But notice also the word behold. Let me read this again. How can you be saying to your brother, demanding of your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye and behold, the plank is in your own eye. Anytime it's in the, the Bible where you see the word behold, and some translations don't use it anymore, and it's sad because it's a, it's a marker, it's a construction designed in Greek to get the attention of the reader of the exact thing that's said next. It'd be like someone going, Hello, John, you've got this beam in your eye. Belinda, her parents go to a church in Tennessee. I'm going to give you an illustration, a very real illustration. The pastor of this church, from their little church, the church had been there 175 years, believe it or not, and it's still going. Today they're meeting. He was a good exegete of Scripture. He loved missions. This dude just ate up missions. He loved evangelism. He himself had even had gone on a trip to smuggle Bibles into China. You know, not through, not through the, through, I mean, he, he literally walked him in across mountains. But he had a man in his church, in their church, had a car that had a Bud Light sticker on the bumper. Okay? Well, the church sits on the main little thoroughfare of this little town of 100 people. I mean, I mean, it's a little town. It's the only church. And this pastor was absolutely incensed that this little bud-like sticker was on the back of his car, of this man's car. As it turned out, the man shared a car with his son. His son had put it on there. I don't know the story exactly, how it all came to be. But this pastor was determined, we're going to change this. He grabs Belinda's dad, who's one of the deacons, and says, I want you to go to him and rebuke him. Get him to remove that sticker. See, he's wanting to perform surgery, and he's now gathering the deacons around. His attitude is completely condemning. He doesn't really love this man. He doesn't really even know him. Hadn't he got the time to, hadn't he spent any time with him to really get to know who the fella is that's in his church? And he was demanding the deacons go and do something about it. Well, fortunately, they didn't do it. Incidentally, this same condemning attitude towards others was manifest in this pastor's home. And tragically, his wife has left him today. See, when we don't remove the beam in our eye, it will lead us to make unreasonable demands on other people. This is why this is so important. How can you forgive someone the way Christ forgave you if you don't remove the beam? The beam is the unloving attitude towards another person. She left them. Now, I'm not saying that divorce is the right response because if I had been counseling her, I would have told her, don't leave your husband. It's a better way. God has a better way. So I'm not saying that's the right response. I don't believe it was. But I know that God uses means, even the sinful action of others, to chasten and humble us when we refuse to consider the beam in our own eye. And if you think that's an overstatement, who took Israel off into captivity? The Babylonians. They were evil, wicked people. God uses means to humble his people. I want us to understand that this morning. 
Consider the metaphors Jesus has used here. He compares a speck, something so insignificant with a beam, a beam that is big enough to hold up the roof of this structure. We've seen that judging is prohibited. We've just um, also discussed that if I ignore this beam, it will lead me to act in very unloving ways. We also find that that God will judge us in the same manner with which we judge our brothers. So the issue is not our sight, is it? It's not that we can't see the beam. It's not that we can't see the beam. Am I talking too fast? We're okay. It's our hypocrisy. It's our hypocrisy. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. Look at verse 5. Hypocrite. First remove the plank, the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove that speck from your brother's eye. We must judge ourselves. That's exactly what Jesus says here. This word for hypocrite in classical Greek literature did not have a negative connotation. It was not a derogatory term. It referred to an actor who portrayed a character in a play. So, you know, we see actors, they pretend to be someone else. So they were a pretender. It wasn't, it didn't have a negative connotation. So, but, so a hypocrite denotes one who's a pretender. He's not who he pretends to be. And in this context, the hypocrite has demanded, he has demanded the role of the eye doctor. And it begs the question, You've heard people, you ever had people that just came in and decided to take over and you ask, who died and put you in charge? Anyone ever heard that or said that or thought that? I see a lot of heads moving. What's happened is this individual has decided to usurp the position or the authority of somebody else. And in this case, the beam in his eyes has greatly affected his judgment. Remember, he can't see it. He knows it's there and he won't do anything about it. This has greatly affected his judgment. In John chapter 5, verses 22 through 27, we find that all judgment has been given to the Son. See, he's trying to usurp in the life of this brother the place of God in his life. He's trying to usurp the right and the authority that Christ has to judge that individual on his terms, in his way, in his time. And the brother's taking that position over. In this instance, obviously, a hypocrite is one who has a wrong relation between the failings of one's brother. And incidentally, we're not, it didn't have to be a big sin. It could be something as insignificant as a bumper sticker. Clearly, Jesus wants us to understand that. But in this instance, the hypocrite, the pretender, the actor, the usurper of Christ's authority and rightful position is judge in his church. Christ is the head of the church. He's the judge. This individual, while all too eager to denounce, his brother's failings, his own failings are ignored. But what is that wrong relation? What are we talking about? He has a wrong relation with his brother. He has a wrong relation with his brother's sin. What is that? Well, if you look over at Matthew 18, I'm going to let Scripture demonstrate that for us. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 21. And I'm just going to read this text. Again, it is it takes no scholar. You certainly don't need me to, to teach this to you. The smallest child who can read could stand up here and read, and we would understand perfectly what we're fixing to understand. What is this wrong relationship that this individual has? Let's read it. Verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, 
I'm not saying to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then Jesus said, begins to teach him through a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, here's that term, is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Incidentally, this would be more than anyone could pay in a lifetime. But the servant, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and everything that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. He released him. He forgave him the debt. But that servant went out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. But he wouldn't listen. He went out and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. And they came and they told their master all that they had seen. Then his master, after he had called him back, he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. The story ends there, but Jesus doesn't stop talking. The story ends there, but Jesus is not finished speaking. Look what he says next. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I don't think it could be any more clear than that. We read it back in Matthew chapter 6 that if we don't forgive others, our father in heaven won't forgive us. We've read it here that this is what my heavenly father will do to you if each of you, and we're talking about not an external forgiveness, like you agree just to be kind to the person, or you agree not to just take him to task. He says, if you don't forgive him from the heart. I want to ask you a question. Can I see your heart? I can't. But who does? God does. Our Lord sees our heart. We are to forgive each other from our hearts. In reference to God's children here, even immature believers, look at the warning in Matthew 18.10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's talking about a young believer. He's got a child sitting in the midst of him. But this is, a, is an illustration of a believer who doesn't know much. Y'all had children. You know how they act. Is anyone so naive to think that a new believer wouldn't have all kinds of problems? <laughs> of course they do. I remember when I got saved, I grew up in church. When I got out of when I finally left my mom's home, I just abandoned all that. And just made a wreck of my life. Well, got, uh, I abandoned my wife and my daughter, not Belinda. I have a failed marriage. It was through that situation God saved me. And he did. He saved me. And goodness gracious, my whole life began to change. But there were a lot of habits I had with me. And I'll tell you something I didn't see here was the greeters out there smoking cigarettes. But I did. I would be greeting people at our church with a cigarette hanging out of my hand and really welcoming those brothers in. And you realize nobody said a word to me about that. They left that in God's hands. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not your pastor, I'll let Eki sort this out. But what I'm saying is that there are new believers and they have all kinds of things that God hasn't changed yet about. We have to be careful based on what we see in verse 10, that we don't despise one of these little ones. To look down on someone with contempt or aversion, a brother, with the implication 
um, that one considers him of little value, you know, we're warned about that. In light of the tremendous debt we've been forgiven, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, we just think for a second, do you put yourself in that, in that story? Think about what the king of kings has forgiven you of. I mean, there's an overhead projector, and it was. Just, you know your own secret sins. You know what I'm talking about. The things that you know about yourself that if anybody else knew, and if we could play them up on the big screen here, every one of us would run out of this building in shame, wouldn't we? Even as believers. But yet, God knows that about me. You wouldn't let me preach if you knew my secret sins. You all have them, I know. But if we could see them, we would be ashamed that anyone saw them. But God sees them. Do you know, believer, that no matter what you do as a Christian, God's love for you is not diminished in any bit? Think about that. Nothing you can do can diminish God's love for you. Now, it doesn't mean he won't chasten you because he does love you. You spanked your children, not because you want to see them hurt, but because you wanted to see them change. You love them. Consider how much you've been forgiven. I find myself here very well. We've been forgiven a tremendous debt. So we are always, 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 the only response to that is to forgive others. Our brothers who have these little specks in their eye. And this doctrine, as I said when I started, lies at the heart of all Christian relationships. A beam will prohibit your ability to live in obedience to Christ with other believers. Just while you're there, let's for a second, let's look at Ephesians 4. If you don't want to flip there, I'll read it, but write it down so you can go back and study it later. Ephesians 4, verse 31 to 32. Look what it says here. And if you don't, if for a second you don't think that the church can have problems like this, understand every one of these epistles that's written, Paul's writing to a church because they have these problems. Look what it says. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Malice. Can you imagine two brothers in the church, one wishing such ill and harm against another one? That's, that's normal Christianity, unfortunately. We are not perfect people. God is still at work in us. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. Y'all are studying this. Eck, you'll get there. These are believers treating each other this way. Put all this away from you. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The context here is conflict, isn't it? Do you have to forgive anyone that hadn't done you wrong? Of course not. Would you be bitter towards someone who hasn't um, done you wrong? Of course you wouldn't. If we cannot see our own sin more clearly than we see anybody else's, we'll never obey these texts of Scripture. And the implications of that is if we never obey these texts of Scripture, the world would look at us and say, why in the world would I want to be a part of y'all's group? Jesus hadn't done anything for you. He hadn't changed you. You're not any different than I am. And they wouldn't be looking at the bumper sticker that says Bud Light or Marlboro on your bumper. They'd be looking at you, your character. That's very important. Another one, Galatians 6.2. This one I think is even more more direct is what it says because here it actually allows that someone has fallen into some kind of trouble it starts off brothers if anyone's overtaken in any trespass overtaken fallen in any fault you her spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ if I don't see my own sin more clearly than I see everyone else's, and I want you to understand, I wrestle with this, okay? Belinda will tell you. We have had all kinds of things. If you ever have teenagers, my goodness, and the Lord just beats you in, before, in between the eyes with this, I look at my scoffing 
18, 19 year old, he's not scoffing today, but he was, for the last six years, we endured great trouble. But at the same time I'm having to deal with that, juxtaposed next to that is the reality of all that God's forgiven me of. I have to keep these two joined. The relationship between me and another believer is seeing my own sin more egregious than anybody else's. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you see your sin more clearly than you see anybody else's? I don't always, and I would suspect at times you don't. God gives us a sequence when it comes to helping a brother in Christ. And, and incidentally, if you're in marriages, if, I mean, if you're married, you know how hard this is. I mean, your spouse does something that you know is wrong. Immediately, I mean, in other situations, we had something that occurred involving our youngest son, but Belinda had done something and it went against something that we had decided on. And, um, and I, had, I was offended and I was really angry. And I just needed to walk away for a second, go gain my thoughts. But before I got 10 feet from the front door, the Lord says, John, have you forgot your sin? What about your sin? And, you know, and as much as I wanted to, to hold on to that and be angry towards Belinda, be bitter, unforgiving, unkind, guess what? The Lord didn't give me a moment's peace. Within 15 minutes, I had to go back because and I just walked in and said, baby, I forgive you. God forgives me. I forgive you. And guess what? The conflict was over. Now, just let me ask you this question. And I don't know who, some of y'all may have been fighting this morning. I don't know. It usually happens on Sunday mornings some, in some way. But just imagine for a second. If you could consider your own sin, if you could look at your own life. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. That's not hyperbole. He really believed that. That's why he would do what he did. But if you could see your own sin that way. If you would regard yourself as the chief of sinners, when your spouse, not if, but when they do something deceitful, wrong, they sin against you, if you could practice this, and that would, can you imagine how that might radically transform your home? What about with your kids? Then I'm not making little of people doing you wrong. I'm saying God gives us a way forward, all right? The person who has usurped Jesus' authority is imitating God in a way he's not allowed to imitate God. You know, we're commanded to imitate God. Ephesians chapter 5, 1, Therefore, as his beloved children, be imitators of God. But we're not allowed to imitate him in every way, are we? Can I take someone else's life? No. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So I can't imitate him there. I can't imitate him in judgment. We just looked at that. So how in the world am I supposed to imitate God in these ways? Well, other texts of scripture would say, as your father in heaven is merciful, so you be merciful. That's how we imitate God. Does that make sense? Imagine how that would transform every relationship you had. If in the moment, and I give you how hard that is, but in the moment, if I could remember my own sin, if I would remember that my Lord forgave me a debt I could never repay, I could spend all of eternity in hell and never satisfy that debt, and he just wiped it away with the blood of Christ. And we're called to forgive one another that way. God gives us a sequence, a sequence when it comes to helping our brother in Christ with any sin or even a little potential sin. Do I see my sin more clearly than I see anyone else's? Do I consider myself the chief of sinners? Do I consider how God has responded and is responding to my sin today? And, by the way, what I'll do on our way home, because I'm sure we will have words of some sort, because I'm human and she's human. Am I extending kindness the text I really would like y'all to write down if you're taking notes is Psalms 103, verses 8 through 14. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. One of my favorite texts of Scripture to remind me of what I've been forgiven of. The highlights are, He does not reward me according to my iniquity. He's unjust in that way, isn't He? He's unjust. 
I don't get what I deserve. Jesus got that. That was unjust to Jesus. Merciful to me. Go back and study that. See how that intersects your life. Am I extending kindness? Am I tenderhearted towards other people? Do I bear long with the weaknesses and the imperfections of other believers? These are essential. This is essential to the life of the church. If you've done this, then guess what? You have removed the beam from your eye. This removing the beam is not about perfection. I will never be sinless. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, consider your own sin more egregious than anyone else's so you will be forgiving. You will be helpful to your brothers. This morning we've seen that all judgment belongs to Christ and therefore we're not to judge our brothers that are in Christ. Judgment must begin with me or God will equally chasten me to humble me until that beam is removed. I, I would... I, I would urge you if you're fighting if you're holding on to bitterness towards someone god will have the last say make no mistake about it he is determined to conform you to the likeness of christ he loves you he saved you with that mind with that in mind you will be conformed judgment begins with me we've examined what great sin i've been forgiven and the compassion and mercy God's extended to me, and therefore that beam can be removed. And when I'm able to look with compassion on my brother, I can help him in a Christ-like way. But there's a final warning for us this morning, and it's in verse 6. Let's look at that back at Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Matthew 7, verse 6. The beam, by the way, when it's removed and you really are useful in the church and in the kingdom and you're a comfort to others, doesn't mean people are going to listen to you. Look what it says in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Christians are to exercise discernment. Not everyone is a sheep. Some people are dogs, hogs. Some are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is what Jesus is saying. Godly principles do not work, nor can an unbeliever live by these things. If you throw the best ribeye steak that's perfectly cooked, garlic and butter, it's wonderful. You throw it to the dog, he's, you know the foolishness of that. He's not going to appreciate that. He can, you'd never teach him in a thousand years not to step in a mud puddle. This is what a dog does. They do what they do. You cannot expect that these principles are going to work with unbelievers. And if you try to teach or demand that unbelievers live this way, that's very unwise. Christians are to exercise discernment. As God's people, we're privileged to handle the holy things of the Lord. He's entrusted to us the precious truths of his word. And we have to regard them carefully. One commentator has stated, and I liked it, so I included it. No dedicated priest would throw meat from the altar to a filthy dog. Only a fool would give pearls to a pig. It is true that we must carry the gospel to every creature, but it is also true that we must not cheapen the gospel by a ministry that lacks discernment. In Luke 23, 9, we find that Jesus refused to even talk to Herod. This is why. In closing, a couple texts I just want us to look at to be discerning. Just one in particular. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7 through 8. This will help us understand this as we close. Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 8. Proverbs. <clears throat> Here's what it reads. Remember, we're talking about don't give what's holy to the dogs. Don't, throw, don't give your pearls to swine. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not rebuke a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man 
He will love you. I want to ask a couple questions here this morning. When a brother comes to you, he's not demanding. He's approaching you in love. Do you respond by scoffing? Are you a fool? Are you the wise man? I don't know. I don't know any of y'all. I want you to understand, Eki didn't tell me to point at people. I'm just asking you questions that I have to, to wrestle with myself. When you're rebuked, do you love the other person? Do you approach your brothers in love? We are to be discerning. We don't throw what's holy to the dogs. I recognize that can, unfortunately, Christians can act like that. What do you do in that situation? Well, you commend them to the Lord. You pray for them. And you trust that the Lord of the church will bring whatever judgment, chastening is necessary to bring them back to where they want to be. And you love them during that whole process because it's probably going to look bad for them. But unbelievers, you can't, they can't embrace these truths. Does that make sense? This is what the word says. I recognize this morning that in a group like this, there may be people here who need to repent. Maybe you have some bitterness you're holding on to towards somebody. Uh, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Christians are never to be bitter towards anybody, period, even unbelievers. So if you're harboring that kind of bitterness this morning, that beam will prevent you from being used by God in many, many, many ways to bless his people. And you'll miss out on the blessings on that this, as well. But also recognize there may be people in here that don't really know Christ. And maybe for the first time ever in your life, you are really being just tore up because of the, the anger and the bitterness, the unforgiveness that you have towards someone else. And you're thinking, gosh, Lord, how do I become one of these people of God? How do I get into your kingdom? And it's simple. The Bible says to repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. After this service there, there's any number of people here I'd be willing to talk to. I know that, that well, I don't know too many names, but most of y'all would be equipped and more than happy to talk. So find somebody. But if that's you today, do not leave this building without reconciling that. Let's pray.